everyone. Welcome to Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. I am Heather Hoops Matthews here with Nexon Pruitt Healthcare Attorney Dara Coleman. Dara, good to be with you again. It's great to see you, Heather. Our topic today is going to be talking about gastroenterology. And when you think of that, I often think of colon cancer. Right. I know that's one of the things that they help prevent. That is a topic that has touched your family and loved ones. Could you expound a little bit? Absolutely. Um, colon cancer is something that touches a lot of families and a lot of people that we know. It is the second leading cause of cancer deaths, but it is a diagnosis um, that can actually um, be treated. It's it's a condition that um, does not have to result in the death of a loved one. And we know a number of people who are so dear to us um, who are still with us, and some who are not. Um, So we are very, very grateful to have with us a leading gastroenterologist who can share with us, hopefully, some lessons and insights that will touch our viewers so that they can be among those who are survivors through early detection and education. That's right. Education is power. That's for sure. So stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Marsh Seabrook, a prominent and leading gastroenterologist in South Carolina, here on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Joining us today is Dr. March Seabrook of Consultants in Gastroenterology. He is a past chief of staff at Lexington Medical Center, past president and founding member of the South Carolina Gastroenterology Association, and most recently, a past president of the South Carolina Medical Association. Dr. Seabrook, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about the role of a gastroenterologist? So a gastroenterologist is the physician specialist in digestive diseases. So we deal with the esophagus, uh, the stomach, the small and large intestine, and often the pancreas and the liver as well. So we kind of, uh, it's uh, from, the, from the mouth to the end, if you yes. will. Yes, that's more than I thought, actually. <laughs> it actually is the very liver and comprehensive. The pancreas, yes. So Dr. Seabrook, what are some of the major digestive issues that you treat on a regular basis? So Dara, as a gastroenterologist, we deal with uh, people who complain of abdominal symptoms such as reflux, heartburn, indigestion, abdominal pain, um, change in their bowel habit, and more importantly, uh, now more than ever, we are the uh, specialists in colon cancer or colorectal cancer prevention. Do you see these conditions um, concentrated in a particular demographic more than others? Uh, the things we deal with are actually universal. So from a, from a reflux standpoint, it does not discriminate. And more importantly, colorectal cancer really does not discriminate certainly against gender or race, but we do know in South Carolina and in around the United States that African-Americans are more adversely affected by colon cancer. Is there anything that you attribute that to? Well, I think probably a lot of it goes back to perhaps socioeconomic conditions. Uh, We know there's some genetics with this. uh, And so it is probably a variety or what we term to say multifactorial uh, in our our business. And and isn't colorectal cancer like the second, um, what is it, the second highest cause of cancer deaths when men and women are combined? Right, so colon cancer is, the way I like to say it, is the second leading cause of cancer death. Now, Lung cancer is number one in both men and women. 
but breast cancer is number two in women, prostate cancer is number two in men. But if you take out the gender specificity, colon cancer becomes the second leading cause of cancer death. What are the screening guidelines then? So right now you're asking this at an amazingly opportune time because just recently, the United States Preventative Services Task Force has released their final recommendation that has moved screening for everyone from 50, which was ordinarily the case, down to 45. This has just happened right now. And so the insurance companies have been covering screening for African-Americans for the most part at 45, but now everyone is gonna be covered for that. And, and why would they do that? Here's what we're finding. Um, we clearly are finding the more cancers in young people, maybe because we're looking more, uh, it may be because people are more aware and presenting earlier, but we're clearly finding it in younger age groups. And you know, unfortunately, this has got to go to lifestyle somewhere, I suspect. Uh, and many things in, in, in life and health are about uh, what we eat and what we do. Uh, and I think that there's probably perhaps some explanation there on the, uh, the younger age group um, uh, being affected by this. And it's not something that people want to talk about. I don't know why. I mean, you know, it's important. And but but younger people need it needs to be on their radar screen now. That's correct. And, and unfortunately, we have South Carolina now has two very good examples of whether even this would not be good enough. Chadwick Boseman, oh, the yes. actor, Black Panther, died at age 43. Mm -hmm. We all know that Craig Melvin's brother also at age 43 has died of colon cancer. And so it is a, um, even the guidelines aren't, aren't great, but they're going in the right direction. The thing is that's most important is that screening means testing when you have no symptoms. And so the important thing is, is if you are having any symptoms, and the four questions that I ask when I see someone is, are you having any change in your bowel behavior, any blood in the stool, any unexplained abdominal pain, or any unexplained weight loss? So those are the four questions that I would generally ask in terms of symptoms, and then we can, we can kind of follow the road from there. That's helpful. Very helpful. What types of screening options are available for your patients, Dr. Seabrook? So right now, uh, I'm biased. I'm a gastroenterologist. I look into people's colons every day. The colonoscopy is clearly the best test by far for a couple of reasons. One, it allows us to visualize the entire colon and at the same time, it allows us to remove precancerous polyps, to identify them and remove them. And colonoscopy and removing polyps is just a healthcare home run. Uh, it has really decreased the rate of colon cancer uh, significantly. Now, in, in the United States, we'll probably have 51, 52,000 people die of colon cancer. That's actually how many people died probably 10 years ago. And you may say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like much improvement, but what's happened is so many more people are above the age of 50 now. So the rate of death from colon cancer is going down specifically because of screening. If a colonoscopy is normal, that we don't see any polyps and we get a really good look into their colon uh, and there's no family history, we pat them on the back and say, come back in a decade. What test is that powerful to say, come back in 10 years? Your mammograms, your pap smears, your prostate exams certainly are not that. And so it is an extraordinarily powerful test. And it is a colon cancer prevention test. The other stool-based test, and we've seen the dancing box on television, um, it is a non-invasive test, 
that is really a colon cancer detection test, okay? It's not preventing cancer, it's there to, quote, detect it. Uh, and so if that test is positive, then that requires a colonoscopy. We've actually done some work in South Carolina specifically looking at those positive tests. We looked at a thousand, almost a thousand people who've had positive, those positive tests and then have had colonoscopies after that. And only 3%, 3 to 4% of the people of that thousand have actually had colon cancer. Many people, 40 plus percent were totally normal at time of colonoscopy. And then the other, you know, almost 50% had, had polyps. Uh, and so it is a, it is a, a test that we, that I don't want to, that we, that we use. It needs to be an arrow in the quiver, so to speak. Um, but it's not for everyone. And I think the strategy for colon cancer screening over time will be everybody get a colonoscopy. Get one if it's normal in your mid-40s or early 50s, and then do another one 10 years later if it's normal. After that, you know, if you don't have any polyps, I really see that there's going to be a better, there's going to be a use for stool-based strategy or stool-based testing after that. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where we are. The two types of testing, the direct visualization colonoscopy, clearly superior to anything else. Uh, and then the stool-based testing. So both in your quiver, but you would say for sure a colonoscopy. Think, again, as a biased yes. gastroenterologist, I do know that looking into someone's colon, taking out polyps or not visualizing any polyps and getting a good look is clearly the best test. Also, in our office, we're going to find for that first-time colonoscopy, we're going to find precancerous polyps anywhere from 35 to 40% of the time. So coming in there with no symptoms, we're gonna find these polyps on a, not a small number of people. And so when that test is done, if we find one or two small polyps and we get a good look, the recommendation is not 10 years. That's where you know, everybody says, well, I, I thought I didn't have to have it for 10 years. If it's normal, that's correct. If you have one or two small polyps, we recommend looking again in five years. If there's three or more, or the way they look underneath the microscope, or they're bigger, we may recommend more frequent or earlier screening, such as three years. Uh, there are some genetic cancer um, uh, diagnoses that require very frequent screening, but those are honestly very rare, to be mm -hmm. to be honest. So. Well, that doesn't, I mean, it, five years is still five years compared with the other tests that you listed that are annual. That's correct. Right. That's correct. Now, your pre practice is independently owned. Um, you have nine physicians, and then your son's going to join That's this right. year. That's right. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. That's exciting. What are some of the benefits and challenges uh, of an independent practice versus one that would be affiliated with a hospital? Well, there's, um, it, I'll be honest, it's a challenge being an independent practice right now. It is. Regulations. Um, the, uh, the things that we have to deal with, the in, uh, insurance companies, it's, it's a challenge, but we are, we are staunchly independent and, and we like that because we don't, uh, we're not associated with a national um, company. So everything that we do stays in South Carolina. I feel strongly about that. Um, we're able to hire uh, the people that we wanna hire. Uh, we get to make our own decisions. We can move much more nimbly than uh, unemployed practice. Um, and I suspect you're, there's only a few, there's only a handful now of independent practices in our area um, that are of any size. And, um, and uh, you know, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. 
Uh, I don't mind the business part of, of um, uh, being in, in medical practice. And that's not for everyone, though. Uh, and so, uh, but there are challenges. And, uh, and that's in, in staying independent is, is certainly our, our goal. Well, one of the things with this podcast is we hope to just educate people that, right. you know, there are differences. And this is an important one that they might not think about. Right. And it's one of the trends, the changes that mm-hmm. we've talked about with a lot of our guests um, that that we've noted, you know, right. in the practice of medicine. And certainly you've had a long career um, in medicine, Dr. Seabrook, already. Mm-hmm. And we, we hope you have many more years. But I'm just curious, um, over the course of your career, what are some of the changes um, that you've observed thus far um, and how medicine is practiced as a whole? Well, I think we've already touched on it, and that's the, the, the status of, of the practice. It used to be that you graduated from uh, medical school, you did a residency, and you could go about anywhere and, and open up shop and, and do reasonably well. Uh, I think the consolidation, uh, the mergers of, of healthcare systems uh, in our own area, we've dealt with that. And we're still dealing with that right now. I think that's part of it. The physicians have handed over so much to the hospitals and the insurance companies. And that's really a shame because they are uh, all of both of those organizations do get in the way of the physician patient relationship uh, because of the demands that the hospitals uh, or the healthcare systems may put on individual physicians for reaching certain goals and expectations. Uh, and then the, the challenges that we deal with um, from the insurance companies in terms of what we call pre-authorizations uh, to get medicines and the needed medicines, the appropriate medicines for individuals. And, and to, be, to be frank, the insurance companies can put up so much roadblock that we throw our hands up. And then the, the patients are the losers here. Uh, the insurance companies um, are not the losers in anything right now. Uh, I'm very confident about that. Uh, the other thing is the technology. Yeah, we've had wonderful changes in advancement in technology and the things that we do, uh, and, and especially in certain therapies, uh, immunotherapy, biologic therapy for things we deal with like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. But you know, those medications for those drugs are thousands and thousands of dollars each dose, each wow. dose. Now, and then there's no transparency in medicine. There's no transparency in terms of costs and that type of thing, even though we would like to move in that direction. Uh, there's, there's very little of that. The other thing is, is the electronic health record. Um, I think that that has, has brought wonderful things in terms of, of uh, communicating with other physicians uh, and getting things very quickly uh, in front of us. But it is, it is, it is clearly a barrier uh, in the room uh, with the patient when we're, when we're talking to them, trying to get to know them. Uh, I, I have the, I personally, I bring the, the computer in the room with me. Uh, I dictate in front of the patient so they know exactly what's going into their medical record. Uh, my thoughts uh, and the plan and what they're telling me. So I get the verification that, that I'm saying the appropriate thing. Uh, and then we, we work out the plan from there. But it, those, are, those are some of the, the major challenges that are that, um, uh, you know, good and bad uh, for a lot of it. Well, it sounds like you have identified the the um, advances and also the challenges that have come with um, some of those advances in healthcare. We just talked a few minutes ago about your son joining your practice in August. Um, what is some advice that you would offer to young physicians about your forecast for the future, about how you see the practice of medicine evolving in the future? 
Well, a, a couple, couple of things. This is kind of broadly. Uh, I, there's a big concern about physician burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, we're beat up. I mean, it's, uh, you know, don't, don't feel sorry for me. I mean, I've, I have. I've had, a, I've had a, a great career. And if it ends tomorrow, I've had a great run. And I mean that sincerely. I, I, I love what I do. Um, the, the challenges um, are going to be uh, being able to be resilient uh, and deal with, with everything that, that comes at you. Uh, I think the, the part of caring and, uh, for your patients is, is, as they would say, is timeless. And, it, and, and that, is, that is still a challenge, though, uh, with uh, time restrictions, with things to get done, with things flying around you. You know, being able to take that time and be able to communicate and interact and uh, get to know your patients is um, is still a little bit of an art um, that that is takes a little bit of time time to learn uh, and and then broadly from healthcare, probably twenty percent of your health is related maybe to your medical care and eighty percent is related to you. Um, the social drivers or the social determinants of health and the people watching this podcast probably don't have any of those issues, um, to be perfectly honest. But uh, I think that we need to figure out how we can do better as a society uh, in in determining those, because watching this podcast, you likely have a car, you likely have food on the table, and you likely have a roof over your head. Uh, And so it is, there's no doubt that your status will determine your health or is a huge factor in your health. Um, And you know, we, you know, it's hard for the physician to, to be able to nail down all of those, those things. Um, but it is, I think that's really going to be one of the challenges that we face as a society is, is um, how we deal with everybody's health. Well, that relationship's at the heart. Right. And right. that's a tall order, but I mean, you see it more than, than we probably would, the vast difference of where you enter really in society and end up impacts your health. There's, there's, there's no doubt. Yes. There's no doubt. And, and, you know, we are, you know, we do extraordinary things in healthcare. Um, we do things I kind of scratch my head about occasionally. Uh, I feel very, very strongly, and this is time for another subject, uh, about uh, end of life um, on the things that we do from that standpoint. Um, I am, one of the phrases I use with, with folks is, uh, there is a difference between prolonging life and prolonging death. And I am all for number one, but I am not for number two. And and we have to um, we have to learn. Uh, and and not only the phys- the physicians know, but it's it's the expectations of the patients and their families oftentimes that are uh, misguided. But uh, you know, I, I do think um, I hope we do a better job of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and be happy to talk about that later too. Well, and that's you know that's one, again one of those topics that like you talk about it before you need it. That's right. right? That's right. I have as I um, I'm a good Boy Scout. I have already written my obituary, and I take no medicines, and I'm <laughs> <laughs> planning to live a while longer. Yes, <laughs> yes. Well, um, for those of you listening and watching today, the breaking news that we want you to end with today is if you're 45 and over. Brand new recommendations yes. that colon cancer. Colorectal cancer screening begins at age 45. Uh, Talk to your physician. Yes, Dr. Marsh Seabrook, thank you so much for joining us today. Dara, good to be with you again. Great to see you, Heather. This this is an important and timely topic, and we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. For those of you watching, we'll catch you next time on Taking the Pulse, a healthcare podcast.